A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and Isabel Hardman. So new figures are out today which show pay has fallen further behind the rising cost of living. Kate, can you just talk us through how we got to this point and what it means? So there are a lot of statistics out this morning on the labour market. Some of them are relatively positive. Unemployment is still at record lows. In the month of June alone, it sat at 3.6%. And I think all of this is a huge tribute to the furlough scheme. Keeping unemployment low is like the major factor that's still keeping stagflation at bay in the UK because we have high inflation. We have, in in many ways, a stagnant economy, but we still have unemployment at, at record lows. It doesn't appear to be rising by any rapid rate. I think it went up by 0.1%. So that factor is really quite crucial when it comes to keeping away the dreaded stagflation. But all of that is secondary today to the headline point that wages have taken their biggest plunge on record. Now, the reason for this is fundamentally inflation, and it's a reminder of, of the ways that inflation just ruins us when it's spiraling out of control. Because average pay, when we don't include bonuses, actually rose between April and June by 4.7%. That is not nothing. That is a substantial average pay raise. But because the cost of living crisis is spiraling out of control, and because inflation is so high, in real terms, wages have actually fallen by quite a remarkable three percent as I said the, the the biggest plunge on record so I think that another way to put this is even though a lot of employers are handing out pay raises even though people are technically earning more they don't feel like they are they feel like they're worse off and this is an extremely painful reality especially as we go into a winter where we know prices are going to increase even more and just on that briefly Kate when we're looking at these projections, obviously you point to the fact that the issue is inflation. Do we have any sense of when inflation can start to go down? We obviously had the Bank of England forecast suggesting a peak of over 13%. Mm-hmm. So look, I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't know when it's going to peak, but it's important to remember that the Bank of England has been wrong and in many cases too positive when it comes to its previous forecast. Yeah, it keeps having to increase its forecast. You know, for a while they were saying, look, it's not going to rise above 5 or 6%, then it wasn't going to be above 10%. Now, apparently, it's going to peak at 13%. The really tough reality for the UK right now is it's experiencing the economic pains of both Europe and the US. It's experiencing the energy price shocks of Europe, and it's experiencing a, a very tight labor market like the US is. I, I mentioned that unemployment rate. It is very low. In many ways, that's a good sign. But we also have very high vacancies in the UK, which is leading to more inflation. The combination of these two things just means a lot of pain for what now looks to be a prolonged period of time. I don't know when it's going to peak, but it's clearly going to rise before it falls. It's about the fact that we're looking at inflation staying high for the foreseeable. How does that factor into, I suppose, the pressure that's already growing on the Tory leadership candidates to say something about what they plan to do to ease cost of living? Yeah, so there's there's two things really. One is this general cost of living crisis and people struggling with their energy bills people struggling with the cost of food and so on as Kate says people feeling as though their their lives are getting very much worse even if their pay individually is going up 
and we've talked a lot about that on this on this podcast about the gap between the headlines and some now some of the things coming out of the opposition now that Keir Starmer's back from his holiday and what it is possible for the Tory leadership candidates to say and indeed for those who are in the current government to say. Then there's the second thing which is going to make everyone's lives also feel very complicated and difficult which is the public sector pay element of this. As Kate pointed out the level of inflation means that even pay rises that are being recommended by the public sector pay bodies that would in previous years have seemed okay as opposed to public sector pay freezes that we saw over the past decade are unacceptable to the nurses, the doctors, the train drivers and so on who are working in the public sector or for train companies and so on. And this means that we've got the prospect of widespread strikes or some kind of industrial action, whether it's work to rule or so on, in the public sector, in addition to the strikes we've seen from train drivers on railways and at airports and airlines. And so this means that Brits, as well as if they've got a private sector job, struggling with the cost of living, they may also feel as though the country's just not working for them at the over the next few months. And that's going to be a real issue for whoever becomes Conservative leader, because industrial relations, how they deal with the trade unions, whether they decide to go on a sort of a aggressive collision course with some of those unions, whether they try to mollify them. All of these questions are up for debate and to a certain extent haven't really been addressed beyond the sort of, I suppose, what you'd expect in a Tory leadership contest, which is quite a lot of union bashing to this point. And, you know, that's how these things work within leadership contests. But there will be a much more serious set of decisions for the incoming prime minister to make in the autumn about how far they're going to push this. Kate, is the next Tory leader just going to have to get used to being pretty unpopular? I think there's a a very real chance that the next Tory leader is going to be facing only uphill battles. doesn't really matter how optimistic you are. There's a strong argument that this is just going to be a tough period of time. I, I should also point out that when inflation peaks is only part of the question. How much inflation gets baked in is also a very important part of this question. And forecasts are just forecasts. They're not crystal balls. Nobody can really predict the future. But it is very concerning now that the Bank of England thinks that this time next year, inflation could still be around 9 or 10%. That would suggest that prices are not going to collapse as many people thought they would, especially pre-Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when a lot of that inflation was clearly just linked to supply chains being slow to come back online after lockdowns. People thought, okay, well, these are temporary one-off problems in the system that are going to sort themselves out. Now there are increasing questions about the overall cost of energy for the foreseeable future. Not simply, let's say the best case scenario, Russia de-escalates, removes its troops from Ukraine, and that really is the best case scenario. It still isn't obvious that Western countries are going to start buying up all of its gas again. So we're now talking about substantial changes to the way that we consume energy, and that is going to have a big price tag attached for some time. So to your point, Katie, I think the the next Tory leader, the next prime minister, may well have some good policy solutions to tackle some of these problems. But a lot of this is now baked in for at least a temporary period of pain, and it's it's going to be hard. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear to both candidates that what they've proposed so far does not go far enough to help especially the most vulnerable households through this winter. 
now to Scotland. Isabel, we have the first Scottish hustings this evening in Perth of two Tory leadership candidates. They've both already outlined their opposition to a second independence referendum. That's not particularly surprising. But do we have any sense yet of which the two candidates is, is getting the vote when it comes to the north of the border? Well, speaking live from the ground in my shed in West Lothian, I think it's interesting that the the dynamic of the last contest, where you had most Scottish Conservatives coming out for Jeremy Hunt rather than Boris Johnson, who who's never been a, a sort of electoral asset, at least to the Tories on this side of the border. Certainly the SNP see him as an electoral asset. And I thought it was quite striking when uh, he was leaving the chamber that the uh, nationalists look probably the most miserable in Parliament on his final day there. But this time around, they're being much more cautious. I think there's a a desire to back the winner so that the SNP doesn't sort of try to sow divisions over who Scottish Conservatives backed and which leader might be able to speak best to Scotland. There's obviously also the the Douglas Ross dynamic, if you could describe the the many positions Douglas Ross has taken over Boris Johnson over the past year and a bit as a dynamic, more of a sort of, I mean, he's been very dynamic in that he's moved from one position to another on an almost daily basis. So I think the Scottish Conservatives are in quite an anxious place at the moment. And then in terms of how the two candidates talk about the union, how they show that they are the candidate for the union. We had Alan Cairns, the former Welsh secretary, saying that he was moving from Rishi Sunak's campaign to Liz Truss's campaign yesterday because she's the candidate who's best suited to to preserve the union. Others have hit back saying that he's a careerist. And obviously there, there is a move amongst Conservatives who would quite like to have a job in, in, in a trust government to, to, to back the, um, the, the one who looks like the winner now. But there is there are questions about both of them, actually, about what their plans are to make the positive case for the union. Rishi Sunak talks about making a positive case for the union, but doesn't go into further details and did get himself into some hot water after the hustings that he did with us at The Spectator, where he talked about his uh, treasury campus in Darlington as an example of how he would devolve power. But it came across as though he, he thought that Darlington might be in Scotland. So that was something the SNP became obsessed with for a little while. So he may he may end up clarifying his geography of Scotland at this hustings. Liz Truss obviously spent some of her childhood in Paisley and mentions that quite a bit. But but neither of them really talk beyond the sort of the very, very superficial sound bites. And that's because at most of the hustings they've been at, Scotland has been to a certain extent, for a lot of Conservatives, an irritation because they, you know, they find Nicola Sturgeon irritating, which is something that Liz Truss has definitely tapped into by calling her attention seeking. They think that Scotland takes more attention away from areas like the West Country, for instance. So now the candidates are in Scotland. They're going to get pressed by unionists who are very, very anxious about the future of the United Kingdom, about what their concrete plans are and whether they're going to go beyond as Rishi Sunak has suggested, setting up a union unit, or as Liz Truss has suggested, being rude to Nicola Sturgeon. And and just finally, Kate, I wondered on that, which is probably what Isabel was mentioning, which is probably the most striking thing Liz Truss has said at a hustings when she said, you know, Nicola Sturgeon ought to be ignored. She's an attention seeker. What did you make of it when you heard it? Did you think it was, this is we're really showing it to the SNP, or, or did you think it was too robust? I'm not... 
I maybe fell somewhere in between. I thought it was off the cuff. I thought it was quite funny. It was potentially not especially professional, but I suppose it's what you might say to the Tory grassroots to to fire them up a bit. I think if you actually break it down, the SNP are frustrated because they don't have Boris Johnson anymore. When both candidates say they're going to scrutinize their their records, there's a lot to scrutinize. Look at the drugs desk, look at the education record, look at the healthcare record. The SNP has had a long time in power and arguably uh, there's not terrible amount to show for it. Of course, the conservatives are also having to defend their 12 years in power because every problem we can point to now, it's increasingly hard to say, well, that's really the fault of a Labour government. These are two parties that are very different, but in similar positions of having to defend up and down records that it's very hard to point the blame otherwise. But fundamentally, the SNP were given a huge gift with Boris Johnson. And with Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, the argument for independence is going to be that much more difficult because you don't have a prime minister who fundamentally puts off the electorate in the way that Boris Johnson did. So I suspect that's where the real frustration lies, not over Liz Truss's uh, fighting words towards Nicholas Sturgeon, because frankly, I think both those ladies can hold their own. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. (laughs) 